Well, I had a seventh grade basketball coach who I believed at the time to be clinically insane. Uh, this was a guy who just ran us constantly. Uh, he had our seventh grade squad just huffing and puffing after every practice. We'd come to the end of our practice each week and our legs would be wobbling and our stomachs would be nauseous because we were so tired of running so many different kinds of exercises and drills, but, but it never failed. At the end of a practice, our coach would, would huddle us up together as a group of seventh grade boy basketball players, and he would put his hands on his knees, he would look us in the eye, and he would say two words that would cause us to cringe every single time. He would look at us and say two words that would cause our heads to fall to the ground because we knew what that meant for us, and he would look at us and say, all right, boys, attitude check. And the moment he said attitude check, we would get a little nervous and fearful because that meant we together had to go to the baseline and stand shoulder to shoulder along the baseline underneath one of the baskets. And then we'd have to take our hands and put them high in the air like this. And then at his whistle, we would just have to run up and down the court. Now, we never knew how long we'd have to run like this. Some days it'd be 30 seconds. Other days it'd be a couple of minutes. And I don't know if you've ever tried to run with your hands, head, hands held high like this, but it's not a very easy thing to do. And so he would blow his whistle and we would just start running back and forth. And then in random moments, he would holler out from the sideline, attitude check. And every time he said attitude check, we together in unison had to say, it's all good, coach. It's all good. And we were a bunch of liars because it was never all good. And he would do this constantly for us because he was trying as our coach to cultivate a certain attitude within us that would be operating every time we took the floor. An attitude that didn't give up, an attitude that wouldn't quit, an attitude that would play hard. And I share that with you this morning because this morning is going to serve as a type of attitude check for us as followers of Jesus. There's a particular attitude that Jesus wants to cultivate within us, that he wants to be operating in our lives every time we step out of our homes, every time we interact with another person, every time we interact with him, a particular attitude that he wants operating in our lives in every moment of every day. The Apostle Paul we put it this way in Philippians chapter 2, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, Jesus emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Let me invite you to grab your Bibles and turn them open to 1 Peter chapter 5 to the passage that was read for us a moment ago because this is a passage that we're looking at as we continue to journey through this letter that calls our attention to the importance of humility. It shows us what humility is all about so that it may be cultivated within our lives each time we take the court so to speak. In the seventh grade, I also had an enemy whose name was Andy. And this guy played for our, uh, our rivals across town. In the seventh grade, this guy was six foot ten. He was a genetic freak, just a big guy. He, he went on to play scholarship in both basketball and baseball at Texas A&M. And, and eventually he went on from there to become a wrestler for the WWE. So fun fact there, he, he wrestled under the name Jackson Andrews. He, he was a big man. Well, in the seventh grade, 
He played for our rival, six foot ten, and my name is Andy. His name is Andy, so I took it personally, and and I took my little uh, point guard frame, and I would drive it to the basket every time, trying to score on this big guy, and and I'd just put my head down, and it was me against him every time, and I'd ignore my teammates. They they just kind of became parsley on the dinner plate, you know. They're just there. They don't really. They're not contributing much, or at least I'm not letting them contribute much. And I would take it to the hole, and and I'd put up my shots, and. More times than not, Andy would send my, my shot into the stands to hang out with my family, uh, just blocking my shot left and right. And at one point, we were playing this team, and Andy was just dominating us. And, and my coach called a timeout. We're moving to the sidelines, and I hear somebody say, man, Andy is killing us. And I thought to myself, yeah, Andy is killing us. That guy's destroying us. But it turned out my teammate wasn't talking about that Andy my teammate was talking about this, Andy. I was killing, I was killing our team. You know, my biggest enemy in the seventh grade was a guy named Andy, but it wasn't that Andy. My biggest enemy as a 40-year-old man living here in Seattle continues to be a guy named Andy. A guy by the name of John Stott said this, at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy. And humility is the greatest friend. And so if pride is our biggest enemy, if being self-absorbed and self-focused, if that type of pride is our biggest enemy and humility is our greatest friend, how do we, how do we get it into our lives? What is humility and how is it to be cultivated so that we can adopt the same attitude as Christ? So that we might live our lives in a way that would flourish and not flounder so that we would live our lives to cause people around us to be blessed rather than to say, man, Andy's killing us. Well, here in 1 Peter chapter 5, what I want to do is, is point out some reasons why humility is our greatest friend. And there are eight reasons I want to give you, and I'm going to give them to you uh, for funsies in the form of an acronym. That's how we're going to kind of walk through this passage. And, and the first reason why humility is our greatest friend is quite simply because humility enables us to honor God as God. It enables us to honor God as God. In verse 5, nestled within verse 5, is this powerful phrase that God resists the proud. Now, when Peter drops that line into his letter, he is quoting Proverbs 3.34 that says, God mocks those who mock, but he gives grace to the humble. And this was a popular verse in the early church. Peter uses it in his letter. James would quote it, quote it as well. It was a popular dynamic that God gives great, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, the word pride there literally means to show above. And the reason why pride is our greatest enemy is because pride causes us to try to show ourselves above. We try to show ourselves above God in a variety of ways by by living our way rather than his way, by trusting in self more than we trust in the Savior, by doing what we think we should do or need to do in order to pump ourselves up rather than relying upon the grace of God. And the guy writing these words, uh, the apostle Peter, he was a man who knew the struggle. He knew that pride was his biggest enemy because it hindered him from following Jesus faithfully on a number of occasions. There were a number of moments when Peter tried to show himself above Jesus of all people. There was a moment when Jesus is talking to Peter and the disciples and he's explaining to them 
why it is necessary for him to go to the cross and die. That he has come for that reason, and he must go to Jerusalem and, and be crucified. And Peter hears those words, and in response, he tried to show himself above Jesus, saying, no, Jesus, this shall never happen to you. And he got between Jesus and the cross, and I don't know if there's a better illustration for what pride is than that. Pride is standing between Jesus and what he wants to do to rescue us and to redeem us. It is trying to show ourselves above Jesus in such a way that says, Jesus, I don't really need you to do what you've come to do for me. And so in pride, we try to show ourselves above Jesus by believing the cross is not necessary for our salvation. We try to show ourselves above Jesus by, by believing that something like the cross is just too narrow for us to want to be about and to align our lives with. To say that we need to be saved by another, that requires humility. A refusal to say that we need to be saved by another, that that is pride. But in humility, what do we do? Well, in humility, we, we listen to Jesus when he responds to Peter in that moment. And he said to him, get behind me, Satan. You do not have your mind on the things of God. You have your mind on earthly things. And so he called Peter in that moment to check his pride because pride was his greatest enemy in that moment. And replace his pride with humility that says, yes, Jesus, I, I hear what you're saying. I need you to go to the cross. My life depends on it. And so humility is our greatest friend because it enables us to honor God as God. It lets God be God in our salvation. It trusts God to redeem us. It trusts God to rescue us. It trusts God to be gracious towards us. And so we humble ourselves before God saying, God, I don't want to be God. God, I, want to try to, I don't want to try to save myself. I want to humble myself before you and trust in your plan and your purpose that you fulfilled in sending Jesus to us. Now, one of the biggest things that hinders a person from coming to, coming to salvation and what's going to keep the most people out of heaven is pride. It's the pride that doesn't recognize one's need for Jesus one's need for the cross, one's need for Jesus' obedience and Jesus' righteousness and Jesus' substitution. Pride is going to be what keeps most people out of heaven. So we want to oppose it. And God tells us in this text that he opposes it. And so humility is our great friend because it helps us first to honor God as God, but not only does it enable us to honor God as God, it enables us to, uh, it helps unite God's people. In verse 5, Peter uses this metaphor. I want you to clothe yourselves in humility towards one another, which is a powerful imagery because it reminds us that humility doesn't come naturally, that humility is something we must put on like clothing. We must put on like a garment. He's saying every time you approach another person, I want you to clothe yourself in humility towards them. If you're not thinking about humility before you approach them, your natural inclination is going to be to try to show yourself above them. You're going to try to show yourself above them in some discernible way. Just as humility would enable us to honor God as God by reminding us he's God and we're not. Humility brings unity to our relationships with one another because it reminds us that 
that we're not above any other human being. This is one of the most remarkable dynamics of humility is that humility enables us to know our place under God, but it also enables us to know our place beside other human beings. That when we interact with another human being, we're not interacting with anyone who is inherently superior to us. When we interact with another human being, we are not interacting with anyone who is inherently inferior to us. No, when we recognize who we all are under God and who we are next to one another, we stand shoulder to shoulder. And humility then enables us to walk into a room and look every person in the eye. Humility prevents us from looking down on anyone, and it prevents us from assuming a posture of inferiority that that is looking up to others in an unhealthy, unholy kind of way. And so humility brings unity because humility reminds us that we're all created in the image of God, that we're all finite, we're all fickle, we're all sinful, we're all in desperate need of the grace of God. And when we recognize that, unity can happen. Now, I realize that people unite over all kinds of things, but for the follower of Jesus, what unites us is the grace of God. It's God's grace towards us that humbles us, that causes us to be under God and to be beside one another. And so when we relate relate to each other, we're putting on humility. We're, We're dressing ourselves in humility so that we can relate to one another in a unifying way. Now, this is true for each and every one of us, no matter who you voted for this past week. No matter who you voted for, no matter who you supported in the election, It's possible for you to clothe yourself with humility and to sink into community with people who might have thought differently about the political process, who might have thought differently about who would be best for the country to serve as president or whatever the case may be. I want you to clothe yourself in humility as you relate to other people. But then we go on. We see that humility is our greatest friend because it enables us to honor God as God. Humility unites God's people. Humility also measures greatness God's way. And when you're measuring greatness God's way, you find that that's really the only way that matters, right? So you may ask the question, should a Christian pursue greatness? Should greatness be something that we seek after, that's something that we pursue? Is greatness something that we should try to attain in this life? Now, Jesus had some disciples who really wanted greatness, two brothers, a guy by the name of James and a guy by the name of John. And they had a helicopter mother for a parent. Uh, A lot like, kind of reminds me of Beverly Goldberg from the Goldbergs, a, a woman who was just a helicopter parent who inserted herself into every situation to assure that her kids got the best about everything. And she tried to push her kids into situations and settings that would set them up to be the best or to get the best or whatever the case may be. Imagine you have a helicopter mom and you're running with Jesus. And imagine your mom showing up and trying to insert herself into how Jesus views you and how Jesus should treat you. Well, this was James and John's experience. There came a moment when their mom, their mom walked up to Jesus. Their mom approached him, and this is what she said to him. She said, promise that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right, and the other on your left in your kingdom. Now that's helicopter parenting if I've ever seen it. Jesus, I want you to guarantee that my sons, James and John, will sit on your right and your left in heaven. I want them to occupy 
the most premier position under you in heaven. That's what I want for my sons. Now, sure, I'm sure most moms would want something like that for their kids. But to actually advocate for it like she's doing, that, that's taking it to a whole nother level. And so in response to that moment, Jesus called his disciples together, and this is what he said to them. He said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And those in high positions act as tyrants over them. It must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so I find it interesting that Jesus did not respond to this mother's inquiry by squashing the desire to be great. He doesn't necessarily say that desiring greatness is bad. He doesn't say that greatness isn't something that Christians should pursue. What he does in that moment is he redefines greatness. He turns greatness on its head and he says, look, greatness is is something that I want for you, but I want you to learn to measure greatness my way. And I measure greatness not according to earthly status and earthly position and earthly prominence. I measure greatness according to humble, sacrificial service. I measure greatness along the lines of you being willing to put others in front of you. You being willing to serve those around you. That's how I am measuring. That's how I am defining. That's how I am determining greatness in my kingdom. After all, that's what I am all about. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve by giving his life as a ransom for many. Now, over the past several years, maybe a decade now, there's been lots of videos coming out with different uh, Christian celebrities or well-known Christians are coming out and they have these I Am Second videos. And the intent and spirit behind those I Am Second videos is, is great. But, but Jesus seems to be saying something else here, right? He's not saying, I want Christians to be second. He's saying, I want Christians to be last. He's saying, greatness in my kingdom comes to those who say, I am last. And this is what he's calling his disciples to. And this is where greatness is to be found. But this is also the kind of greatness, if you're willing to say, I am last in a certain setting, or I am last in a certain environment, or I am last in a certain social interaction, if you're willing to say that, understand that you are embracing a way of life that will not be applauded or celebrated in the world that is. You are embracing a way of life that will be overlooked. You are embracing a way of life that will be ignored. It will be overlooked and ignored by everyone but one. Perhaps you're familiar with the name Stephen. Stephen was one of the early disciples in the church when it was birthed in the city of Jerusalem. And there came a situation where there were some Greek widows whose needs were being overlooked and being neglected in the church. And so the apostles like Peter and James and John, they decided to to empower others to, to meet those needs and to help take care of people in the church. And so they appointed Stephen, along with some others, to care for these Greek widows. Stephen wasn't out front necessarily leading the church in Jerusalem. He was serving behind the scenes, making sure that these widows were being cared for. Now, a few chapters in the book of Acts removed from that moment when Stephen's empowered for that, Stephen goes out in public and he begins to talk about Jesus and begins to share the gospel. And we are told that 
the society did not respond positively to who Stephen was and to what Stephen was saying. And so what happened was he started talking about Jesus and sharing the gospel and a crowd of people got angry and they picked up stones and they began to throw them in Stephen's direction. Stephen was being pummeled by stones until eventually he, he died right there in front of a whole crowd of people and not one single person was applauding him for the way that he served widows in Jerusalem. Not one single person was celebrating the service that he had given to those who were disenfranchised in the city of Jerusalem. Instead, everyone looked over him and saw him give his life in that way, but we're told in that moment, or that there came a moment when Stephen looked up into heaven and he caught a glimpse of the Savior. And we're told that as Stephen was being stoned and put to death, after devoting his life to caring for these widows in the city, that the Savior himself stood up and the Savior himself began to applaud him, so to speak, preparing to welcome Stephen into heaven, welcome Stephen into the kingdom. Everyone overlooked what he had been doing. Everyone ignored what he had been doing. Everyone but one. And so when all was said and done and Stephen's life was over, he found the Savior standing and applauding. He found the Savior standing and welcoming him into the kingdom of God. Humility is one of our greatest friends because it enables us to measure greatness God's way. It enables us to live not for the applause of our fellow human beings, but for the applause of the Savior who gives it gracefully, who sees our sacrifices, who sees our willingness to serve when no one else is looking, who sees our willingness to put other people ahead of ourselves and to say, you know, I am last and I'm okay with that. Because in the kingdom of God, the last shall be first. And we're measuring greatness God's way. But then you keep going in the passage. Not only are we measuring greatness God's way, humility is our greatest friend because it isolates anxiety. It helps us to isolate anxiety. Listen to what it says in verse 7. Verse 7, Peter refers to how we should be casting all our cares. Your translations may say casting all our anxieties on him. He's saying, I want you to cast your cares, cast your anxieties upon the Lord. The word or the feeling of anxiety that everyone suffers from at certain points in time and to varying degrees, everyone struggles with anxiety. Anxiety is kind of like an alarm clock that goes off in the morning and it's never shut off. It just goes off in the morning and it continues to blare throughout the day. This is what anxiety is like for the soul. It's like there's an alarm clock going off in the heart and it's still ringing constantly. And it, and it, and it keep, makes us irritable. It makes us fretful. It makes us worrisome. Anxiety is a lot like that. The, the word that's translated care here or the word translated anxiety in some of your translations, it has the root meaning to, to divide and draw in different directions. And the idea is that there are cares that we have in this life. There are anxieties that we carry in this world that are pulling us apart, that are stretching us so that we are spiritually thin, spiritually anemic. And we need in that moment some iron. We need some iron to be added to our diet so that we're not stretched so thin, so that we're not pulled apart like Braveheart and and just stretched in those kinds of ways. And so notice what Peter says, though. He says, I want you to cast all of your cares, all of your anxieties upon him, but why? And then he drops some iron on his readers. 
He says, this is the iron I want to inject into your diet. This is the iron I want you to put into your bloodstream so that you're not anemic. I want you to cast all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. It seems so simple to say to someone who has lots of cares, lots of anxieties, lots of worries. It seems so simple. In some ways, it might sound simplistic to remind someone that God loves them, but that's exactly what Peter does here. And the fight of faith, when you're struggling with anxiety, when you're struggling with various cares and worries, the fight of faith is to believe that, is to believe the simple reality that God loves you. And because he cares about you, you can cast all of your cares in his direction. Because he loves you, you can draw near to him in the midst of your anxieties. You know, it's sometimes said when we gather like this, sometimes worshipers and disciples and people in the church are encouraged, before you come in, I want you to just leave all your stuff outside. Just leave it all behind. Come in and worship Jesus. But that's the exact opposite of what we're called to do here. He's saying as you draw near to God and worship, you're not leaving anything outside. You're not checking anything at the door. You're bringing it all into this moment. And as you worship the Savior, you are casting your anxieties. You are casting your cares upon him precisely because he loves you. Precisely because he calls you to himself saying, I want you to come. Let me be with you. Let me minister to you. Let me comfort you. Let me relieve your anxieties in the thick of it. And so we don't check anything outside of our relationship with Jesus. We bring everything into it because he loves us. He knows everything about us, and we can live in that direction. And humility enables us to do that. Humility reminds us that we are loved by God. Humility says, I'm not going to try to hold this back from Jesus. I'm going to bring this to Jesus, casting my cares upon him. So humility helps us to isolate anxiety, so to speak. It enables us to wrestle with it appropriately. But then you keep going in verse 8. Humility enables us to honor God as God. It unites God's people. It measures greatness God's way. It isolates anxiety. But then humility enables us to level the devil. You look at verse 8. This is what we read. Be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him, firm in the faith. Resist the devil. Now, we're going to revisit this portion of the passage next week as we, as we dive into this reality of spiritual warfare and all that it entails. But for this moment, I want you to think about the connection between pride and spiritual warfare. The fact that Peter's talking about humility and, and he then talks about the devil. And he reminds us that the devil is like a roaring lion who is prowling around looking for people to devour. He's looking for people to eat. And let me ask you, what does the devil like to eat? What does the devil like to feast on? Well, he likes to feast on your pride. He likes to eat pride in your life. And when we are not cultivating humility, instead we're caressing our pride, we are just giving the devil more food to eat. And so you think about that dynamic because if we're told to resist the devil, how do you do that? Well, you resist the devil by checking your pride and cultivating humility. You resist the devil by honoring God as God. 
You resist the devil by clothing yourself in humility when you relate to another human being. You resist the devil when you learn to measure greatness God's way. You resist the devil when you're casting your anxieties upon the Lord, believing that he loves you, and you're nurturing humility. It enables you to resist the devil so that when he comes to your your life, when he approaches your soul looking for something to eat, he can't find anything to chew on. When you're checking your pride and cultivating humility, you're You're providing a menu option to the devil that the devil's not interested in. He hates the taste of humility, but he loves the taste of pride. And so the way we resist the devil is by nurturing humility. Humility serves us well in that way. And so we cultivate humility because humility enables us to level the devil. Some of the ways that you can do this practically as a follower of Jesus, as you live in a regular rhythm of recognizing your need for the grace of Jesus so that when you sin, you don't try to justify your sin, you don't try to cover your sin. No, when you sin, you confess your sin. You talk to Jesus about it. You ask for forgiveness. It takes humility to do that. When you sin, you exercise repentance. You learn to think differently about what you were doing and what you weren't doing. And you begin to confess, you begin to repent, you you start believing the gospel, trusting that God loved you enough to send Jesus to live and to die and to rise for you. And so you live in a regular rhythm of confessing sin, of practicing repentance and, and putting your faith in the Savior over and over and over again. That's what humility does. And as you begin to live in those types of rhythms, the devil comes upon you like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, and he goes away hungry because there's nothing for him to feast on in your life because you're confessing your sin, you're repenting of your sin, you're believing the gospel, you're looking to the Savior. And that levels the devil, so to speak. Another way that you can do this practically is by remembering that your greatest problem isn't the people around you. Your biggest enemy isn't someone at work. Your biggest enemy isn't the other political party. Your biggest enemy is the pride and the sin that resides within you. And so you don't live your life constantly playing the victim, blaming everyone else for your struggles, everyone else for your worries, everyone else for your hardships, everyone else for your sinful decisions and sinful attitudes. No, you check your own, recognizing that your sin, your pride is your biggest problem. It is your biggest enemy. And so humility is our greatest friend, uh, a great friend to us because it enables us to level the devil. You keep going. Humility enables us to ignore self-pity. Humility prevents us. It enables us to ignore self-pity. Look at verse 9. As he's kind of flowing from this train of thought about the devil and resisting him, he then goes on saying, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. He's reminding his readers, look, yes, you are suffering. But don't let the devil convince you that your suffering is unique. Don't let the devil convince you that you are all on your own in the midst of your suffering. One of the devil's key strategies in our lives is to isolate us from the community that God gives us to help us. And one of the ways that he does that is by lying to us about the nature of our struggles, causing us to feel alone in them, 
causing us to fill by ourselves. And as he does so, self-pity begins to swell and, and suddenly we're like the foolish gazelle in the African wilderness who wanders away from her pack and the devil is ready in the wakes to leap on that gazelle and take that gazelle out. Self-pity will destroy you. You need to ignore it. And the way that you ignore it is by not thinking you are entirely and completely unique in your sufferings or that you are unique in your struggles. Don't assume you know how other people have suffered or how other people have not suffered. Don't assume you know those dynamics so that you wander from the pack and you become easy prey for the roaring lion who is seeking for someone to devour. Humility is a friend to us because it enables us to ignore self-pity. It keeps us from having a woe-is-me mentality as we journey through the world that is. One of the ways that God comforts his people, one of the ways that God encourages us as we live by faith in Jesus is by putting us in settings like this, putting us in community with other people who are following Jesus so that we're not following Jesus by ourselves, we're following Jesus in the company of others. And in the company of others, there are those who can relate to us in our sufferings. There are those who can encourage us in our sufferings. There are those who can comfort us as we're struggling. When you think about God being a comforter for our lives, how do you think his comfort comes? Ordinarily, how does God comfort people? Ordinarily, God comforts people through the presence of others, through community. And so we want to ignore self-pity because self-pity detaches us from others and it causes us to think we are unique. When I was in college, I learned this lesson after I busted my ankle. I busted my ankle after doing a Pete Rose dive into a big pile of mud after playing a flag football game in the rain. And, and uh, there were lots of people out there. And, and we were just about to get in our car and go back to the campus, our college campus. And, and I said, wait, I'm, I'm going to do one more dive. And and I had everybody wait. I said, all eyes on me, right? Pride coming before the fall. And, and I just took off across the field. And, and then I'd, I had in my mind that I was going to dive like Pete Rose. Pete Rose would dive headfirst into the bag when he would steal bases. And I was thinking, that's what I'm going to do. Now, the embarrassing part is that I played college baseball at the time. And, and so I've slid my whole life. I know how to slide. And so I was going to run and dive Pete Rose style and slide as far as I could in the mud. But just before I went to slide and Something happened in my mind, and I changed my strategy. Rather than going head first, I decided to go feet first, and my body and my head kind of went in two different directions, and, and my cleats kind of stuck in some roots, and my body went one way, and my legs went the other, and I heard a loud pop. And I'm just laying face down in this mud in the rain, and all my friends just saw me make a fool of myself trying to Pete Rose dive, and, and I can't get up. My ankle's killing me. And I'm lying there in the mud, and they see that I'm not moving, that I'm not giving, getting up. And so they all kind of come my way, and they, they check on me. Now, imagine. Imagine if I would have responded to my friends who had come to help me while I was on the field. If I would have looked up and said, guys, I appreciate you trying to help me, but right now I'm the only one with a bum ankle. All of you have good ankles. You're walking fine. You, you can't really understand or what I'm going through in this moment. You're not feeling what I'm feeling, therefore you can't really be of help to me. 
My ankle's busted. Y'all's ankles are fine. Just go about your day. Leave me alone. That would have been a very foolish way to respond to the people who had come to help me, to the people who were healthy enough to carry me off the field, the people who were healthy enough to get me to the hospital where my ankle could be tended to and and improvement could could be had. Well, we want to ignore self-pity and not proudly say, well, I think I'm the only one suffering in these ways. You all look like you have things together. You all look like life is going well. So you may come and try to help me because you're aware of how I'm suffering. And if we look at that help and say, look, I don't want it. You can't understand. You're not feeling what I'm feeling. We turn that help away. Who are we really hurting in that moment? We're hurting ourselves. And in pride, we're refusing the help that God has sent our way to be with us in that moment. But humility doesn't do that. Humility ignores self-pity, and that brings us to the next dynamic. Humility is a good friend to us in that it enables us to trust God's sovereignty. Humility enables us to trust God's sovereignty. This is where Peter goes next. He says in verse 10, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. To him be dominion forever. Amen. Notice that phrase at the end of verse 10, after you have suffered a little while. He's providing perspective. He's saying, yeah, you're suffering, and your suffering sucks. Your suffering is terrible. But recognize that you will only suffer in the grand scheme of things a little while. You think about Jesus. He lived 33 years, give or take only to then die on a cross in an excruciating, painful, egregious sort of way. He remained dead for three days. But then what happened after those three days? He was restored. He was established. He was strengthened. He was resurrected. And soon after that, Jesus ascended, and he took his seat at the right hand of the throne of God, where he has reigned and ruled for the last 2,000 years. 33 years is just a blip on a radar when you just think about that time frame in light of who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing right now. And Peter is saying the same reality is true for the believer. Your sufferings are real. Your sufferings are terrible. But keep in mind, they only last a little while. There is coming a day when God restores you. He establishes you. He comforts you. He exalts you. And he puts you in a reality where you are not touched by any form of sin, sickness, suffering, or death. That perspective enables us to endure what comes our way in the world that is. So that though we suffer now, we only suffer for a little while. God is sovereign. And one day he's going to right every wrong. One day he's going to flip the script on all of our sufferings. Humility trusts that. Humility rests in that reality. There was a man by the name of Stan who was friends with my dad, and he had a son who was my age. And and when he was in college, he was in a car wreck. And in this car wreck, he died instantly. So my dad and another guy went to his father's house, went to Stan's house to comfort him and just to be present with him. And, And they got to Stan's house. They walked up onto the porch, and the door was cracked open, and And they heard the faint sound of a piano playing in the back room. And my dad was thinking as he was walking into the house, what am I going to say? What am I going to do? How do you be be there for someone who's just lost his son? So he got to the house and he began to follow the piano music playing 
all the way to the back of the house. Stan was a classical pianist. And when he turned the corner and he got to the room where Stan was, he, he saw Stan sitting at the piano playing a song, singing over and over and over again, God is still sovereign, God is still sovereign, God is still sovereign. And he sang those words while tears were streaming from his eyes. What enabled him in that moment to sing and to trust that reality in the face of such an egregious suffering? Well, I believe it was humility. That in humility, Stan did not respond to that moment with his fists in the air. He responded in that moment with his hands open up and his hands praising God through song. That was a guy who in that moment was trusting in God's sovereignty. And in that moment, Stan became a living illustration of what he showed us what humility is in the midst of our sufferings. He believed there was coming a day when God would set even that terrible thing right. That there was coming a day when God would restore and establish and comfort and strengthen Stan and reunite him with his son one day. Trusting the sovereignty of God. You see, pride responds to suffering with clenched fists. Pride responds to suffering in a way that says, I'm going to fight God. Humility responds to suffering with open hands. Humility recognizes that God is sovereign and we are not. Humility recognizes that God promises to make everything right one day and that the suffering we are enduring, as bad as it is, it will only last a little while. And from the perspective of eternity, it's going to barely be remembered. So we trust God's sovereignty. And then lastly, humility is a great friend because it enables us to yield to Christ. Humility yields everything to Christ. Humility looks to Christ to provide us perspective on all things, suffering included. Peter reminds us that we have an eternal glory in Christ. A humble person is someone who finds everything that they need in Christ. They find identity. They find value. They find stability. They find hope. They find comfort. They find everything that they need in Christ. And so we're yielding everything else to Christ. We're saying, I'm not going to live my life in a pride way where I am trying to make a name for myself apart from Jesus. No, I'm going to live my life in such a way that points everyone to the name of Jesus. I'm going to yield to Christ in every moment of every day. I'm going to yield to Christ in my sufferings. I'm going to yield to Christ in my community. I'm going to yield to Christ in the decisions that I am making that says, you know, God is God and I am not. And so we have humility that enables us to yield to Christ. And it is this act of yielding to Christ that will allow you and I to be a stabilizing presence in the world that is as we journey to the world that is to come, that we can be a source of stability and a source of peace, that we can be people who are blessing everyone around us and not fighting with everyone around us. Humility enables us to do that. So humility is our greatest friend. We want this attitude. We want to adopt it. We want to embrace it. We want to close ourselves in it because it enables us to honor God as God. 
It unites God's people. It measures greatness God's way. It isolates anxiety, levels the devil, ignores self-pity, trusts God's sovereignty, and yields to Christ. You may think to yourself in this moment, well, yeah, I I want that. How do I grow in humility? And this is where it gets tricky. Because if you want to grow in humility, you got to understand that humility isn't something that you necessarily pursue directly. Humility is a lot like the sun outside. How do you benefit from the sun? Well, you don't walk outside and stare directly at the sun. It's going to leave you blinded. It's going to leave you with an inability to actually see anything around you well. No, you're going to walk outside and recognize that you benefit from the sun, not because you look at it directly, but because you see everything that the sun is showing you. If you want to grow in humility, this is what you do. You don't grow in humility by looking at humility directly. You grow in humility by seeing what humility shows you. And what does humility show you? It shows you Jesus. It casts light upon the Savior. It casts light upon his beauty. It casts light upon his dominion, saying that Jesus rules and reigns over all things. And I'm going to look to Jesus over and over and over again. And as you look to Jesus, humility will grow in your life. Humility will be fostered among you. Humility will become your greatest friend. But be warned, humility is a shy friend. The moment you focus on humility for humility's sake, humility will shrink back and go into hiding. I had friends who started a a band back in the day, and they uh, got a lot of play where I was from. And they uh, were on the radio a lot, and they did their thing. And they they loved Jesus, and they followed Jesus. And they were sitting in an interview with a a radio host one time. And the radio host, we're all listening. We're excited for them, and and we know them well. And we're, uh, we're sitting there, and the radio host asked, what do you think's the best attribute about your band. And the drummer chimed in and says, well, we're a really humble band. (laughs) And the moment he said, we're a really humble band, all of our heads dropped. Because we knew in that moment, humility went into hiding. Humility is our greatest friend, but it's also a very shy friend. And so the way it comes alongside you and it becomes your companion for all the days of your life is as you take your eyes and you fix them upon the Savior, you look to the Savior over and over and over again, and humility will come alongside you and will be your constant companion as you journey through the world that is and route to the world that is to come. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace in this moment to fix the eyes of our faith upon Jesus? Give us grace to look to Jesus constantly, I pray that you would grace us with humility so that we might benefit from what humility is and for what humility does for us. I pray that humility would grow in our lives and be a constant companion to us, leading us to look to Jesus over and over and over again. God, would you give us grace in this direction? In Jesus' name, amen.